Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 411. Today is April 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder money manager at investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I'm going to pack in a lot of knowledge here. We're going to do, I don't know, kind of a stream of consciousness with a market review and some basic commentary on where the market's at and trying to explain some of the intricacies that are very unusual in the current market we're in. And that's everything from extremely low volatility. At the same time, the market is flush with both fear and greed. And that's despite the schizophrenic nature of the headlines, which from day to day can be everything from, you know, manic to depressant. Bottom line though, S&P 500 continues to trade in that range from about 3,800 to just can't get above 4,200. Uh, getting ahead of myself. We'll cover all that and more in this episode. And let me start in no particular order with the global economy. You're seeing a lot of estimates now that are saying that global growth is going to be at or below 3%. And that's even based on the very rosy picture of the China reopening. Uh, there's still a lot of excitement around the China reopening. However, if you really look at the scoreboard, stock performance on Chinese stocks, whether it's tech stocks or an index of their stodgy large cap type stocks, uh, you know, priced in U.S. dollars, they have bounced up significantly from their lows of the past 12 months or so, but they're still nowhere near highs and they're not anywhere near where you would think they would be if there was really going to be a big China reopening. What I just said about bouncing off recent lows, say in the last 6 to 12 months, that's going to be the theme of just about everything I talk about in this episode. Many things have bounced off their lows, and they've bounced up pretty significantly, but that's only because they fell apart so drastically. You have to remember, if something drops 30%, just to get back to where it was, it's got to go up about 50%. And if something drops 50%, it's got to go up 100% just to get back to that old new high. Well, most things even though they've come up significantly from the bottoms that we saw over the last 6 to 9 to 12 months, you know, in many cases being up in the range of 30 to 60%, these same stocks are still way off their pandemic hysteria highs, and some of these as much as still 60 to 80% or even more in some cases. Go look at some of those darling meme stocks and where they were priced in 2021, and see where they're priced now. Again, yes, they've had a big bounce up from the lows, but they are nowhere near the old highs, and I don't think they're ever going to get back there, most of them anyways. Uh, digressing here. In terms of China, look at the price of oil. It's holding above $75 and probably is going to fluctuate in that range of $75 to $80. But in my opinion, if there was really a strong belief that China was going to reopen in a big way, and I mean reopen, not, not that they're closed, but if their economy was going to get back to where it was during the pandemic highs, if that was really the case, then I think oil would be doing a lot better than it is. And frankly, the only reason it's holding above $75 is because OPEC is cutting production. The overall global growth looks really weak, and if we do head into a global recession or even just a global slowdown, that doesn't bode well for oil. And in terms of an overall global slowdown or recession, you know, many people for at least probably 24 months, maybe 18 months, 
have been freaking out over inverted yield curves and pointing to all type of slowdowns and have been calling for a recession nonstop. I mean, there's always perma bears out there. And, you know, they are right every seven to 10 years. But so far, even with the fluctuations and some of the crazy fluctuations that we've seen in the stock market over the last two years or so, you know, the bottom line is, especially in the U.S., we are not yet in a recession. We may not get into a recession simply for the fact that so many people have been anticipating it for so long, right? You're in that investing canoe, and depending upon how the people paddling the canoe are leaning determines whether or not that canoe capsizes. And that's even if the waters are rough. And with so many people positioning themselves over the last 18 months or so, preparing for a recession, that may hold the economic canoe stable. So as much as I want to see a bad recession, and I just want to see the stock market collapse, that just may not be the case, though. Let's look at 10-year treasuries. Even with the Federal Reserve very likely to raise interest rates another 25 basis points coming up in their meeting the first week in May, even with that being a real likelihood, the 10-year Treasury is just now getting back to or above 3.5%. That subdued 10-year Treasury at about 3.5% is an interesting number because it could portray both future stability in the economy as well as the fact that we are headed to a recession. With all these structural, probably long-term and systemic type inflationary pressures, 10-year Treasury just can't get above 3.5%. Now, you got to flip a coin on that as to whether that means that long-term the economy is going to be stable and stagger through all this, or is that 3.5% indicative of the fact that we are headed into a steep recession and the Fed's going to end up cutting rates sooner rather than later. You know, frankly, there's all kinds of debates and arguments about this, and we can discuss it infinitum, but we're not going to know until it happens. I can go either way on it, and in fact, if you go back and read my blog about what I was writing probably exactly 12 months ago to the day, I talked about the fact that we were very likely going to see 10-year treasuries somewhere around that 3.5% for probably a long period of time, simply for the fact that we're in a very overall anemic economy. You hear a lot about how the inflation rate has been stable and under the targeted rate for the last 20 or 25 years or so, but the flip side of that argument is that growth in the U.S. in terms of GDP has barely been above 2% for the last 20 years. And so my argument about an anemic economy was that once we got through the pandemic hysteria and the overstimulation, was that we were still likely headed back to that same anemic 2% GDP growth. And if the economy is growing at 2%, you can't have 10-year treasury yields at 4, 5, or 6%. So even though we're seeing short-term rates very high, the highest they've been since about 2007, we're still seeing fairly subdued long-term interest rates. We've seen gold have some nice performance over the last six months, and especially coming out of the aftermath of the so-called banking crisis. But at the same time, look at the performance of gold over these past six months for at least half or more of that time. It's tracked very similarly to the overall S&P 500. Now, I'm not opposed to buying gold. I think if we do get a big dip, 
It will take down the price of gold just like it always does. Look at all the past near and long-term pullbacks in the market. The reason the market goes down is that all asset classes go down, and that generally includes not only the stock market, but also precious metals. And you don't really even have to go back any farther than, you know, September, October of last year when the market pulled back and hit lows. That's the same time that gold also pulled back and hit lows. You saw the same thing initially during the pandemic. In March, when the market hit lows, gold hit lows. So I'm not opposed to buying gold, but for me and my money, I want to hold off and wait until we get into the recession because if history plays itself out, we'll get a better buying point, not only on gold, but on everything else. Now, speaking of gold and all the recent enthusiasm, keep in mind that this recent breakout in gold has so far peaked out in the first couple days of April. And even with that breakout, it was unable to get above that all-time record high, which happened during the summer at the peak of the pandemic hysteria. And from what I'm tracking, the volume in gold trading is nowhere near where it had been during previous areas of panic. And as a side note, that goes for the same thing with Bitcoin and Bitcoin's recent breakout. I don't want to dwell on Bitcoin, but if you'll notice, it has stumbled a little bit above 30,000. So far this week, it's down more than 10%. My point here is not to cast shade on things like cryptocurrency or precious metals, but rather to say that all these bounces that we've seen so far this year, none of these bounces have been anywhere near substantial compared to the previous pandemic hysteria. If you look at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the mid caps or the small caps or the old FANG stocks, tech leadership in general, any of the bounces that we saw in February and then the subsequent ones that we've seen since the banking hysteria has worn off, their overall performance is still very lackluster. And in my opinion, one of the reasons I haven't chased any of these bounces is because the valuations, the overall fundamentals, are extremely poor. I've entitled this episode, Preparing for New Leadership, because if we do go into recession, I think that's exactly what we're going to see coming out of it. I think we're going to see new stock market leadership. We'll be in a new era. It's no longer going to be an era of globalization and of cheap money. And if that is the case, then it's very likely that the leadership that we've seen so strong in the last 10 to 15 or more years in companies like the FANG stocks, in the Facebook, Apple, Google, Netflix, that, that crowd of stocks, they will likely not emerge as the new round of leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going bankrupt. It doesn't mean that they're not investable. It doesn't mean that they're not good companies. It doesn't mean they won't continue to grow. But leadership changes. And that's really the magic of the S&P 500 and to a limited degree why dollar cost averaging in the S&P 500 works over long periods of time. And that's because stocks are constantly moving in and out of the S&P 500. The S&P 500's composition today is nothing like what it would have been 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. The S&P 500 is an index where the winners come in and the losers go out. It's essentially stock picking and market timing just on a more glaciated time scale. 50 or so years ago, the leadership was big industrial conglomerates. 
General Motors, General Electric, U.S. Steel, IBM. And for the most part, those companies are still all around. But over the last 20 years, they've had nowhere near the growth rate of the newer leadership that came about pretty much after the financial crisis of 2008. What I don't like about the current market and the multiples of the market and even the performance of the market where, you know, it is holding up pretty well right around that 4,100 level. And last year where I talked about that upper support and resistance level being at around 3850 to 3950 on the S&P 500, well, so far this year, we've really seen that support and resistance level being more like 4050, 4150. I mean, even during this banking crisis hysteria, those couple days when the market pulled back, you saw that the S&P 500 pretty much held at around 3,800, which was not the lowest price that we've seen so far in 2023. And yet at the same point, even when the market has recovered from that banking crisis hysteria, it's only gotten up to around maybe 4,160 or so, which has not been the highest point so far in 2023. So the market is range-bound and at fairly tight range. But a bigger part of that, I think, has to do with those really large, high market capitalization stocks that dominate the overall S&P 500 index. The Apples, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Meta, Tesla. You know, those pretty much are the top seven or so stocks. I don't know how many I mentioned there, but those are all within the top 10 or so stocks in the S&P 500 index from a market cap standpoint. They have bounced nicely from their October lows. They're, for the most part, still significantly below where they were at their peak in 2022. The reason I remain pessimistic is because pretty much all those companies I just mentioned, from a fundamental valuation standpoint, I think they're way too expensive. And it isn't solely based on their price-per-earnings ratio, but it's on their lack of growth. I mean, these companies, the reason they've been dominant leaders for the last 10 or 15 years or more is because they've consistently had extremely high reliable growth, right? They are growth stocks, but those growth levels are coming down and I'm suspicious of how well they'll be able to grow profits because it looks like corporate profits peaked in 2021. That was when all the free easy money was available. Right now, leading economic indicators are at their lowest point since 2008 and they're significantly lower than even where they were at during the dot-com bubble blow-up. So if we're to believe the leading economic indicators, then it's hard to believe that these profit estimates on Wall Street in general, and specifically with the tech leadership, are realistic. And even with them, some of the leadership just isn't that great. Look at Apple. Their future growth is forecasted to be at around 8%. 8% is not exactly what you consider a growth stock. But at the same time, Apple's multiple, you know, its valuation from a price per earnings standpoint, is still in excess of about 25 times. So you're paying 25 times to get growth of maybe 8%. And it gets worse with other stocks. You know, Microsoft right now, because of ChatGPT, has gotten a big boost. They're multiples in excess of 30 times, and yet their growth expectations are not that much above 10%. Things like Meta, Facebook, their multiples back up to about a 24, 25 times, 
and yet their future growth is barely projected at 4%. And we see the same thing occurring not only in the big tech leadership, but also in the big consumer products and the companies that are considered to be you know, defensive in nature. Whenever we head to a recession, institutional investors that have to stay in the market, you know, they're forced to buy stocks. And so what they do is they migrate into what they think is going to be the least bad choice. That's why high dividend paying stocks and these other defensive stocks are considered to be recession proof. You know, but you look at things like J&J, Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, they all have multiples in that 25 or so range. And maybe Walmart and J&J isn't quite that high, but certainly pretty close. And yet, despite those high valuations, their growth is anemic. Procter & Gamble, maybe 5%. Walmart, again, maybe 5%. J&J, under 5% growth. You're looking at something like Coca-Cola, which is slightly better than that, maybe 6 or 7% growth. But again, factoring in inflation and knowing that right now, core inflation is still running at or above 5%. These companies aren't even growing at or much above inflation, and yet you're paying very high multiples for them. This is why I say that I'm cautious, and I believe it makes sense to continue to be prudently treading water, waiting for a better buying opportunity, waiting to see if economic indicators continue to decline, which is going to put us into a recession, waiting to see if another combat boot drops on the geopolitical landscape and waiting to see what leadership actually does start to emerge. You know, my assumption right now is that we are going to see leadership emerging and being very strong in more the nuts and bolts type economy that's going to favor companies that are building infrastructure. Because from a geopolitical issue, from an onshoring of industry, from a government incentive in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, the transition away from fossil fuels. All these things are favoring an infrastructure build generally in North America and specifically in the United States. And this is not a new theme. If you have read my book that I wrote back in 2016, I talked about how manufacturing and supply chains over the long term were coming back to North America and specifically coming back to the United States. It's a long-term trend that's been in place and post-pandemic, and emergence into the Cold War II, and war in Europe, and all the other geopolitical and supply chain issues, along with the fact that you know prompted me to believe that this was likely to happen six or more years ago, was because technology and energy costs were favoring that occurring in the U.S. We're seeing that trend pan out, and I think this could be the inflection point where we do see this new leadership emerge of more of the nuts and bolts, industrial type companies, as opposed to the purely high tech companies. Now, there'll be some overlap. There's going to be convergence here because, I mean, look at a company like Apple. We think of them as a technology company. The largest part of their growth comes from their app store. But at the same time, they're a seller of hardware, right? The smartphone and their computers are hardware. Now, will some of that migrate to the U.S.? Eh, um skeptical overall that that's going to happen anytime soon. But we are seeing them relocate, pulling some of their emphasis out of manufacturing in China. It's going to India. It's going to other places. There will be more and more of that 
made in the United States long term. So as far as that new leadership and preparing for it, well, a couple things. I think we're still too early to jump into the market. Again, that's why I'm 90% in cash. But I continue to build my watch list. And what I'm looking for are companies that are North America-centric and involved in infrastructure and industry and technology, right? The convergence of all those things. And these are companies that have a higher than average, a much higher than average growth outlook, you know, looking out over the next five or so years. So those will include some old names that you've heard me be invested in before. And I'm just pulling some names out of the top of my head right now. Just generally and broadly, industrial companies like Caterpillar, Pentair, Honeywell, Rockwell Automation, Train, Jacob Solutions, Waste Management, Schlumberger, Applied Materials, Cummins, Intuitive Surgical, uh, maybe even some railroads, maybe CSX or Union Pacific, maybe even some stodgy old hand tool companies like Stanley Black & Decker, packaging and container companies like International Paper, leasing companies like United Rentals, maybe even some long-term losers like General Motors, which again could be favored from all the government incentives. That's a long list. It's not in any particular order. It's just off the top of my head. There are things that I'm looking at. There are things that I'm building on my watch list. But this is the time to do that. Just to wrap everything up here, I want to emphasize that I'm in a marking time position. I'm not ready to jump in the market just yet. I think a better buying opportunity is likely to occur. But I also don't think the U.S. or the global economy is totally falling apart. I think we're just part of a business cycle. Go over to my blog, investablewealth.com. Look at those articles that I've written over the past couple months where I show everything from the excess of money supply, which again, bodes well for why the economy is holding up. I mean, we're a good four and a half years above trend of where we should be in terms of how much money is circulating in the system. You may not like that, but that keeps the system afloat. There's also the chart on the business cycle that shows that this is just a cycle. The markets go up and down all the time, and we have cyclical stocks that come in and out of favor. I know a lot of people think that the lows were put in in October. I don't think that's the case. Even with the recent recoveries that we've seen so far this year, you're still looking at about more than 40% of the S&P 500 is trading below its 200-day moving average and probably closer to I don't know, 47, 48% is trading below its 50-day moving average. The reason that's important, and specifically the part about trading below a 200-day moving average, that's thin ice. That's a warning sign. That's a red flag. As an investor that tries to not time the market perfectly, but just try to get out of the way of a train crash, I watch the 200-day moving average. And the reason for that, from a statistical or even a mathematics standpoint, if you're worried about a catastrophic loss, which is why I market time. I'm not trying to catch every little wave, every little bounce. I don't chase performance. I generally believe that the market is going to go up. And as long as you're in these growing dynamic companies, they will grow with the economy. But where you want to get out of the way, where you want to avoid the train wreck, is when we go into a recession or when some type of a bubble was blowing up. And look at any chart, a long-term chart of an individual stock or of the indices, 
And you'll see that if you're invested above the 200-day moving average, then it's almost statistically or mathematically impossible to suffer a major catastrophic loss. I'm talking about dot-com bubble or 2008 financial housing crisis type bubbles where you're seeing markets drop 35, 40, 50%. That doesn't happen as long as you get out above the 200-day moving average. But once you breach that 200-day moving average, the possibility that you're headed to a catastrophic loss goes up substantially. Now, the tricky part is, is that the ultimate buying opportunity is always below the 200-day moving average. So you have to weigh those risks. And right now, the market overall is stable. That's why I say we could avoid a major meltdown. We could avoid a recession, especially if the Federal Reserve you know, starts printing money tomorrow. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think there are other geopolitical, secular-type trends in place that are going to cause the leading economic indicators to keep deteriorating. And so when we're looking at this and we're seeing 40-some percent of S&P 500 stocks trading below their 200-day moving average, I think the overall indices goes lower. And that's where we get into that critical area where we could head to a major meltdown. But either way, we get a better buying point and you do want to come in and buy below the 200-day moving average. Hey, when will that happen? I have no idea. As always, come on back for future episodes and we'll find out. Until then, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.